This morning we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Acts 2, 1 through 13. Before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they're clothed with power from on high. And the day has come. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to ask that as we look at this passage this morning of the coming Holy Spirit, that You would send Your Holy Spirit to us. That Your Word would go forth with great power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction so that we can understand this amazing historical event and so that we can also understand what it means for us today. Father, we do not want to miss what You have for us. So please, move mightily in our midst. And we ask this again in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. One way of looking at our redemption or our salvation is to say that it is a work of the triune God. In other words, all three members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. Simply put, we could say that our salvation was authored by God the Father and He authored our salvation before He ever created the world. And then we could say that Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation when He came down from heaven and came to earth and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, everything that we say in our creed. And he died on the cross in our place. He accomplished, He secured, He purchased our salvation. And then we could say that the Holy Spirit applies this accomplished redemption throughout time and history. In Acts 2, Jesus sends the promised paraclete the promised Holy Spirit, the Helper, who would come alongside believers and empower them to fulfill the work of ministry that was given to them. 
So we could say that in Acts chapter 2, we have the beginning of the era of the Spirit. And it is a remarkable era. And I think it is remarkable in ways that the disciples never would have dreamed of. You may recall that back in the Gospel of John, probably seems like forever now, but in John 16.7, Jesus told His disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And here He's speaking of the ascension. And He says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So Jesus says, believe it or not, it's actually a good thing that I leave you. Because if I leave you, the Holy Spirit will come to you and that's much better for you. Now, I just try to put myself in the shoes of the disciples and think, now how would I have received that? I think, I could be wrong, but I think the disciples were a little cynical and a little reluctant to believe that it was actually good for Jesus to leave them. But, when the Holy Spirit did come, they were blown away. And what they received was beyond what they could ever have imagined or dreamed of. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to look at this unique historical event that took place on the day of Pentecost and then carefully deduce some ongoing relevant applications for us today. Now, the passage opens up when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Pentecost literally means 50th. So, this is the 50th day after Passover. Pentecost is also referred to as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Engathering, the Engathering of the Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. Now, if a week is seven days, a week of weeks is how many days, kids? A week of weeks. Let me help you out. Forty-nine. Very good, Christopher. Do you have a calculator? Did you do all up here? Oh. Okay. Okay, thank you for being honest. Okay. All right. So after a week of weeks being 49 days, we have the 50th day, which is the day of Pentecost, which is basically the Jewish old, or excuse me, the Jewish Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. And we should also point out it was the most well attended of all the high feast because of the climate during that time made it very conducive for travel. So the temple in Jerusalem was bursting at the seams of people celebrating this great feast. Luke goes on to say, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Here he's referring to the believers, uh, the 120 who were gathering together. Verse 2 tells us that they were in a house. Um, We don't know exactly what the house was. I don't think it really matters. 
if it was the house where the upper room was or some other house where they were staying together. But you have the believers all together in one place gathered together. And then Luke continues on to describe three phenomena that take place. And we can describe these three phenomena as a sound, a sight, and a strange speech. Or, if you prefer, we can describe the three phenomena as wind, fire, and languages. Let's look at the sound first, which is mentioned first. In verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, Luke doesn't say that it was a wind. He uses an analogy. He uses a simile here. Have you kids learned about similes? Have you learned about metaphors? Jeff is saying, no, my, my kids haven't. <laughs> uh, whenever you see like or as, that's a simile. Notice, Luke says that there was a mighty rushing wind, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Wind. He doesn't say it was a mighty rushing wind. He says it was like a mighty rushing wind. And actually, more literally, in the NASB, if you have that translation, we could, we could translate this, the blowing of a violent wind. Uh, have any of you ever heard the sound of a tornado? Has anybody ever been close enough where they've ever heard the sound? I've heard on more than one occasion that it sounds like a freight train. It does. Okay, that's been confirmed here. Uh, perhaps that's what the sound was here. Like a tornado, a violent wind, like a tornado. Maybe it sounded like a freight train. And I think we should point out that it was so loud that people from a distance came to see what the sound was. We know that because of verse 6. And at this sound the multitude came together. All these people who were gathered in Jerusalem, they heard the sound, so they came to see, what is that noise that we hear? So it gathered a lot of attention. Also notice, um, it's kind of fascinating, it filled the house. The it is the sound. Uh, this sound just filled the house. And also, I think it's interesting that we're told very specifically that it came from heaven. Didn't come from the east. Didn't come from the north. Didn't come from the south. It came from heaven. So it's very clear that this sound, like a violent wind, came from heaven. And this is God the Father and God the Son together sending the Holy Spirit just as Jesus promised. So that's the first phenomena that we have taking place. A very unusual sound. And then Luke describes the sight. Verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire. Again, simile, metaphor. doesn't say that it was fire, but he says it was like fire. It looked like fire. As of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, what is this, quote-unquote, fire? Well, first of all, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
In John 1.16, John the Baptist had said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. One who is more powerful than me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now that promise is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But I also want to say that this fire is the presence and glory of God that is filling the room. You may recall that after the temporary tabernacle was erected, we're told that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then later, under Solomon, when the temple was built, we're told that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I'd like to read that passage. I think it's pretty interesting. This is what we find in Second Chronicles 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 if you'd like to follow along. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. temple is finished. Solomon had offered a prayer of dedication. Burnt offerings. And then we read, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So Solomon prays, fire comes down, the glory of the Lord comes down, fills the house, and everybody sees it and they bow down and they worship God. Now here, fire and glory may seem to be two separate things, but in Exodus 19, it's very clear that they're pretty much one and the same. So if you'd like to, turn to Exodus, second book of the Bible, real easy to find. Exodus 19. And let me also point out, and you'll see the significance of this in a minute, but Exodus 19 is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And this is what we read in Exodus 19, uh, and I'll begin at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people of the camp trembled. So again, loud noise, thunder, lightning, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. So see the picture? You have Mount Sinai. God comes down from heaven. It's like smoke on the mountain. Because he descended on it in a fire, 
the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpets, it grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So here we have God coming down like fire. And then turn ahead just a little bit, if you will, to Exodus 24, 15 to 17. And I want you to realize that God coming down in fire is a theophany. Theophany. There's a big word, kids. It means an appearing of God. And God often made Himself known in fire. Any kids want to give me any examples of God appearing to someone in fire? Alright, go ahead, Daniel. Moses, and he appeared to God where for the first time? In a, in a burning bush. Very good, that's right. In a burning bush. That was a theophany, an appearing of God in that burning bush. And then in the wilderness, God led the people with a pillar of cloud by day, and at night he led them by a pillar of what? Someone tell me. Fire. Very good. That represented the presence of God. Fire represents God's presence. So that's God appearing to His people. And then this is what we read in Exodus 24, 15 and 17. Then Moses went up on the mountain. And by the way, the people were more than happy to go up or to send Moses up to meet with God. And then you come back and you tell us what God said. <laughs> they thought that was a great arrangement. We'll stay right here at the foot of the mountain where it's safe. Because they were, they were scared to death because of the thunder and lightning and the, the smoke and the fire. They were. Moses was scared too, but he didn't have a choice. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain again. So what is this? This is no ordinary cloud. Okay, Moses isn't reminding us, by the way, it was a cloudy day when I, when I went up on that mountain. That's not it at all. This is the glory cloud. And by the way, um, I didn't mention this, but when Jesus ascended into heaven, He was hid by a cloud. Many believe, once again, it was not just a cloudy day, but that was the Shekinah glory cloud of God. And I think that probably is the best translation. Jesus is caught up into glory and they saw the glory cloud. At any rate, verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So fire represents the presence and glory of God. And here we are on the day of Pentecost. We have a sound of a violent wind coming and we have the appearance, what looks like fire. And I submit to you, this is the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven representing the presence and glory of God and it fills the room and then it separates 
tongues of fire resting on each one of them, demonstrating that God's presence is not just in the room, but God's presence is specifically on each individual Christian as they are baptized, as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I had mentioned that the context of the fire and the smoke was the giving of the law in the Old Testament. Now, that is significant because during the intertestamental period, another big term, kids, right? Intertestamental period. Anybody 12 or under know what the intertestamental period is? Anybody 99 or under? <laughs> it's not that complicated if you think about it, Kathy. Yes. Intertestamental period. Inter-between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Therefore, it's the intertestamental period. Period. So, between the Old Testament, before the New Testament came, uh, the Jews celebrated Pentecost also not only as the Feast of Weeks or in Gathering or Harvests or Thanksgiving, but they also celebrated it as the anniversary of the giving of the law. Which meant that they deduced somehow, I don't know all the details on this, you're going to have to ask someone smarter than me, but they deduced that 50 days after Passover was the giving of the law. Now, I find that significant because here you have the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And I think you could have God bringing His law to the people once again. Only this time, under the New Covenant, He's bringing the law in a very different way. And Larry is exactly right. Larry is going like this. The law, at this point in time, is not being written on tablets of stone, but the law is being written on our very hearts. In Hebrews 8, the author quotes Jeremiah 31. Beginning at verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's very significant as a result of having God's law written on our our minds and our hearts. We will not turn away. This is a better covenant. A stronger covenant. And it's a better covenant and a stronger covenant in part because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live as God calling us to live according to His law. So we have the sound, we have the sight, and then we have... The strange speech. 
Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we, we talk about speaking in our native tongue. And what we mean by that is our native language. And I think it would be much more helpful if we would talk about the speaking in tongues as the speaking in languages. Languages that can be understood. And that's very clear from this passage as we're going to see in a little while. Now, I'm not going to get into all the issues related to speaking in tongues, but let me mention just a few things which I think are important and that I think that charismatics and non-charismatics alike can agree on. First of all, notice very carefully that they spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does that mean? That means that a person cannot speak in tongues any old time they wish. In 1 Corinthians 14.18, Paul made the comment that he was thankful that he spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians. Now, if anybody who had the gift of tongues could speak at any time, that wouldn't matter. But Paul, by saying that, was saying that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues more than they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues. This is not something that we can do any old time we wish. Also, I think we should all be able to agree that not everybody has the gift of tongues. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30. Paul writes, Are all apostles? What's the answer? Are all Christians apostles? No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No. The context is very obvious. Not everybody has this gift. And unfortunately, there's teaching that this is a gift that God wants everybody to have. But Paul says very clearly, no. The Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different, different people so that we can all come together and we can use different gifts to build up the body of Christ. It's very clear. No, all don't speak in tongues. And let me also be very clear of this. Tongues is not the conclusive sign that you're a Christian and that you're a Spirit-filled Christian. And I mention that and I make it very clear because even this last week, I was asked by a girl who was visiting our church, is it true that to go to heaven you have to speak in tongues? And it was a great opportunity for me to say to her, no, you don't have to speak in tongues. And then I could explain that we are saved, that we go to heaven by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So it was a great opportunity for me to clarify the Gospel to her. But I want you to notice very carefully why I'm saying this. She received a skewed view of the Gospel. She was told if you want to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. This is the Gospel. People are confused about the Gospel. Not just speaking in tongues, but what is necessary for salvation. So again, I know there's a lot of issues involved here, but we have to be clear about a few things. 
And just one more thing. It's also very clear from 1 Corinthians 14.28 that if there's no interpretation, do not speak in tongues during the service. It just disrupts the service. So, if someone were to speak in tongues this morning, I would say, can anybody interpret what was said? If there's no interpretation, if there's no one from Croatia who said, yes, I'm a Croatian and I can understand what they're saying. Or perhaps someone else saying, yes, I'm a, I'm a Mexican and I understand Spanish and that was Spanish and this is what it means. If that doesn't take place, Paul says, you're to be silent. You're not to speak. It's just disruptive and to outsiders, you'll look foolish. So, I think, I hope, that all of us can agree. Again, whether charismatics or non-charismatics alike, I hope we can agree at least on some of these fundamental issues that are very important. Now, we have these languages taking place. And let's look at these languages. And this really is the focus of Luke on the speaking in tongues. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Notice very carefully. Every nation under heaven is represented in Jerusalem because they have come from all over the known world at this time and they have come to Jerusalem to gather together for the great feast of Pentecost. So again, just let me highlight that. Luke is giving us a very intentional, international description here. And we'll come to come back to that a little later. In verse 6, he says, And at this sound, the multitude came together. Now, I don't know how they came together. We're not really told. Uh, commentators describe it differently. Um, we'd like a few more details, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Somehow, uh, the people heard this sound because it was probably very loud, like a freight train. And they said, well, wait a second. But they said, what is this strange sound? They gathered together, whether that was outside the house or whether the disciples left the house and they came to the temple. We don't know. I don't think it really matters. But they gathered together someplace and what does matter is that the people were hearing them speak in his own language. They were saying, this is strange. I hear them in my own language. Now, some have said that the miracle here is not the speaking of languages, but in the hearing. Now, I don't know where that came from, to be honest with you, but it, it doesn't make sense at all. Uh, because Luke makes it very clear that they're speaking in other languages. So, of course, they hear their own language. And then a little later, it mentions the hearing uh, in the language again because it's coming from the disciples. Uh, so, the miracle here is speaking in different languages. And again, this isn't just babble. Speaking in tongues is not babble. It is understood, known languages. And all the people are hearing them regardless of what their language was. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
Now, you may recall that Galileans have a very distinct accent. Uh, when Peter was betraying Jesus, a little servant girl said, Surely you're one of them. What gives you away? Your accent gives you away. Very recognizable accents, um, which made it clear that he was a Galilean. Uh, at my last class, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I got together uh, for lunch with a couple of the students. And uh, one of the students said, you have a very strong Chicago accent. <laughs> now, I don't know where he got that from. I don't know if it's because, you know, he asked me what my favorite football team was, and I said, the beers. Uh, uh, but it was very clear. I thought they had the accents. Uh, but he said, you have a very strong Chicago accent. And, of course, I guess for them, um, I did, because their response was, you all aren't from around here, are you? No. Uh, but it's very clear that the Galileans, because of their accent, the way they talk, yet they're speaking fluently in this language over here. And they understand it perfectly. And they're saying, this is absolutely remarkable. And Luke goes on and he says in verse 8, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then in verse Nine, we're told, Parthians and Medes and Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and, and a few other places. Notice, just a couple observations. First of all, they are speaking according to verse 11 about the mighty works of God. Or perhaps your translation says the wonderful works of God. So they are extolling God. And of course, these foreigners are listening very attentively because they're hearing it in their own language. They're hearing about how great this God is and it has their attention. Now, what are we to make of all these strange languages? And commentators are kind of confused by this, um, but I really do believe there's a simple explanation. Now, let me remind you of what I pointed out back in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now even if we don't take that literally, Luke is at least saying we have representing all the nations of the world people gathered together. So in one sense, what we could say is that we have a table of nations gathered here. Just like the nations were gathered together at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that? Back in Genesis 10, the nations gathered together. They had one language, one speech, and they were trying to build this tower so they could reach heaven. But what did God do? He confused their languages so that they could not, no longer uh, cooperate and work together. They couldn't understand one another. What's taking place in Acts chapter 2? The exact opposite. Once again, the nations have come together 
But here we have what is taking place. I'm going to submit to you, we can call it the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. God is reversing that curse. The nations are coming together and now the disciples are speaking in other languages so that all the nations can hear it. So God is bringing the nations together now, undoing the curse so that they can be united in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. And the similarities that we have in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and the table of nations that we have briefly described in Acts 2, the similarities that we have between those two is we have descriptions from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And Genesis 2 made it clear, giving us the table of nations, the nations coming from Noah's three sons. And that's the correlation that we have here, making it clear even though subtly, that the Tower of Babel is being reversed. The curse is being undone because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Languages will not be a problem of bringing the people together. And we should also note that instead of the people trying to ascend to heaven, God comes down from heaven and meets with the people. And then this passage concludes in 12 and 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? All of them were saying that. What, what does this mean? There's some kind of very significant meaning to this. But others, or some, mockingly said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. Uh, next week, we will look at Peter's explanation of Pentecost, so we'll leave that for now. But in closing, uh, let's ask this question. How does this apply to us today? What's the application for us? And we have to be very careful in applying this. This is a unique historical event, but there are applications for us today. The first application is that the Holy Spirit is available to all. This Holy Spirit who rains down on heaven <laughs> blowing on the people of God is available to everybody. Let me jump ahead just a little bit in Acts 2. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, that's the people who are listening, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's very significant. Peter has said, as we'll see next week, this is the fulfillment of Joel 2 where God says He's going to pour out His Spirit. And if you repent, if you ask for forgiveness, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This very thing that you're seeing taking place You'll receive the Holy Spirit. He will give it to you. He, do, he doesn't make a distinction. He says, this Holy Spirit, has poured. you'll receive the Holy Spirit. If you just repent and ask for forgiveness, it's a gift of God available to all. So again, I think that's very significant. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all. Repent and put your faith in Christ. And I don't believe that that's a contradiction 
with what I've said on previous weeks that we need to continue to be filled with the Spirit. Those things work. Those things come together very well. We become Christians because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit and have a need to be filled with the Spirit once again, which is why the command is ongoing. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is why in Acts 4, we'll see that these same believers are filled once again with the Holy Spirit. They're empowered once again. So that is ongoing. Uh, Secondly, let's realize, and I talked about this before, but let's realize that the Holy Spirit is manifested in different ways. Um, Let's not try to have a one-size-fits-all mold that we're trying to squeeze everybody into. Um, If you read about revivals, um, you see that they're different. God God works in different ways. Even in the book of Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit coming. And we're going to see that there's similarities, there are differences. So we have to be very careful about saying, whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out on people, it looks like this. No, it doesn't. That's not true in the Bible. And that's not true throughout history. And again, because God uses people in different ways. Uh, When the Holy Spirit is poured out on Peter, he preaches with boldness and power and he goes forth because he has a mission to take the Gospel to the nations. Um, I think it's safe to assume when the Holy Spirit is poured out on other people in the church, they are empowered maybe to encourage other believers because they have the gift of encouragement. Uh, When the Holy Spirit is poured out on other people who have the gift of giving, all of a sudden they have this uh, renewed delight to give monetarily to the work of God. Other people, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, all of a sudden, they just want to tell everybody about Jesus because they have the gift of evangelism. And I bet if we were just to take a few minutes and go around this room and say, have there been different times in your life when you've really sensed that what you experienced was a quote-unquote mini-revival, the Holy Spirit really worked powerfully in you. And If you were to say yes, and then we were to say, and then what followed after that, what did you do? I think we would find that a lot of different things took place because we have different personalities, because we have different gifts, and that's exactly how it's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 12, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but I think it's good to look at again. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. See? Variety, variety, variety. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And I've said this before. I believe spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit working differently in people's lives. I take that very seriously. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So I've I've said before, I've mentioned it this way. When God gives you a spiritual gift, what is He giving you? What is He handing you, as it were? And I believe what He's giving you is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to work in each individual Christian in a different way. So to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then, Paul says, 
To one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and then he just goes right on down the list. So we all have the same Spirit, but he manifests himself in different ways. And then he just gives us a representative list of some of the different ways in which the Spirit can operate. So Christians reading this can say, hmm, how does the Spirit work in my life? What joy do I have in, in serving? Where, where, where do I enjoy serving God? Where do I seem to have ability? And he says that, that's the Spirit. And he helps us to discern what our spiritual gifts are. But let me also say um, that the main way, the primary way in which the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in your life and in my life is through love. Through love. The Corinthians had all kinds of confusion about spiritual gifts and tongues that they were enamored with. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what does he conclude with in verse 13? So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Love. The greatest work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the fruit of love. So regardless of what our gifts are, the Holy Spirit is working mightily in your life. I promise you this, regardless of how you serve, you will serve in love. You will love the people you serve. You will love the God that you are serving, which will make any service that you do a sure delight. And then just one other point of application. The Holy Spirit must be fed. The Holy Spirit must be fed. I remember reading a while back uh, John Piper saying that you need to feed your faith. And I was thinking about that this week and I thought, your faith needs to be fed. It needs to be built up with the Word of God. Uh, the Spirit needs to be fed, I think, in a similar way. Colossians 3.16 And let me remind you, as I did uh, a number of weeks ago, I forget how long it's been, that there's a parallel between Ephesians 5.18 and following and Colossians 3.16 and following. In Ephesians 5.18, we're told not to get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, rejoicing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks to God the Father in all things, submitting to one another 
And then you read Colossians 3.16 and following, and it seems like the verses can almost go on top of each other because there's such a close parallel. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So I've said before, a Spirit-filled Christian is a Scripture-saturated Christian. And let me put these two together now by saying that is true because the Spirit needs to be fed. And what I mean is this. The Spirit uses the Word of God in our lives to strengthen us, to nourish us, to build us up, to give us faith, to give us promises to cling to when we're going through difficult times. That's how the Spirit works. The Spirit works in conjunction with the Word that He inspired. So if you want to be a Spirit-filled Christian, you must be committed to the Word. Which means at a very practical level, daily we have to be in the Bible. Daily. And let me also say that the goal isn't just to read through, you know, three chapters. Okay, I read through my my three chapters. I'm good to go. I, I would say this is the goal. The goal is to read the Bible until you hear from God. And, and this is what I mean here from God. Read the Bible until something stands out to you. It can just be a little thing. You're, just, you're reading through and you're like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Pay attention to that. I really mean that. Just pay attention to that and pause. Reflect on that. And turn that into prayer. Whether it's confession because you're guilty, like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm that guy right there. Um, or whether it's a desire or something you want to see in your heart. You know, you read of David. David was a man after God's own heart. And you say, oh, that, that's what I, I want. Lord, I want to be a man after God's own heart. Give me a heart like that that longs for you. Whatever it is, whether it's confession or something you, you long for, or just thanksgiving, you read about God doing something amazing. Wow, that's, that's just pause right there. And I would submit to you, it would be better to have one verse like that that hits you that you reflect on, that you turn it back into prayer for God. It would be better to have one verse like that than three chapters that, that you're just going through so you can say you had your quiet time and get on with the rest of the day. Again, the goal is to meet with God, to hear from God. And, and can I just encourage you, just try that this week and, and see if God doesn't meet with you and, and see if your quiet time, your devotional time, it, it's semantic. I don't really care what you call it. But see if it isn't more significant. Remember, you want to meet with God. Ask God to feed your soul. Say, Lord, I want to hear from You. I want to be built up by You. Speak to me through Your Word and see if God doesn't minister to you. And we need to remember that that there's a war going on. Turning back to Galatians, in Galatians 5... Paul talked about the works of the flesh and then he talked about uh, the works of the Spirit. But this is what he says in 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or 
sinful nature. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So here's the battle. And I think every honest Christian can relate to this battle. You've got the Spirit working in your life, and you have this thing called the flesh or the sinful nature also in your life. And there's this battle. And Paul says they're opposed to each other. They war against each other. There's conflicts. The Spirit wants you to do one thing. The flesh wants you to do another thing. We have to walk according to the Spirit. And then a little later, he says in 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How do you sow to the Spirit versus sowing to the flesh? One way is at least on what we're meditating upon and the Word of God. When we think on things, when we're thinking on the Word, it's feeding the Spirit, if you will. It's sowing to the Spirit, if you will. So He has something to work with so that we can be built up by God's Word and walk according to the Spirit. So that we can walk according to the Spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh and have, quote-unquote, victory in the Christian life. So again, let us remember how the Spirit and Scripture come together. That's very important. Because one thing is clear. And here I'm going to quote from John R.W. Stott. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the Spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from the fruit of the Spirit. And no effective witness without the Spirit's power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so a church without the Spirit is dead. And so a Christian without the filling of the Spirit is dead. Jesus has given us a mission. He has given us a task to accomplish. And in order to do that, He has given us His Spirit because we cannot do it on our own. And thankfully, we do not have to do it on our own. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the New Covenant brought about by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank You for the New Covenant that also includes what we could call the era of the Holy Spirit that is poured out in a new and remarkable way. We thank You for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, would You strengthen us? And even today, we would ask that You would fill us anew with Your Holy Spirit. That You would strengthen us to fulfill the task that You have for us. Father, we all have a job to do. Father, help us to use our gifts in the power of the Spirit. Help us to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. 
And Father, help us to realize that we need to be very deliberate and intentional about sowing to the spirits and not sowing to the flesh. But Father, even in realizing what we need to do there, we ask for Your help. And again, we thank You that it's available via the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.